Chapter 5, Part 2 of Principles of Geology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Patrick McAfee, Chicago. Principles of Geology by Charles Lyell. Chapter 5, Part 2. Prejudices arising from our peculiar position as inhabitants of the land. The sources of prejudice hitherto considered may be deemed peculiar for the most part to the infancy of the science, but others are common to the first cultivators of geology, and to ourselves, and are all singularly calculated to produce the same deception, and to strengthen our belief that the course of nature in the earlier ages differed widely from that now established. Although these circumstances cannot be fully explained without assuming some things as proved, which it will be the object of another part of this work to demonstrate, it may be well to allude to them briefly in this place. The first and greatest difficulty, then, consists in an habitual unconsciousness that our position as observers is essentially unfavorable when we endeavor to estimate the nature and magnitude of the changes now in progress. In consequence of our inattention to this subject, we are liable to serious mistakes in contrasting the present with former states of the globe. As dwellers on the land, we inhabit about a fourth part of the surface and that portion is almost exclusively a theater of decay and not of reproduction we know indeed that new deposits are annually formed in seas and lakes and that every year some new igneous rocks are produced in the bowels of the earth but we cannot watch the progress of their formation and as they are only present to our minds by the aid of reflection it requires an effort both of the reason and the imagination to appreciate duly their importance. It is, therefore, not surprising that we estimate very imperfectly the result of operations thus invisible to us, and that when analogous results of former epochs are presented to our inspection, we cannot immediately recognize the analogy. He who has observed the quarrying of stone from a rock, and has seen it shipped for some distant port, and then endeavors to conceive what kind of edifice will be raised by the materials, is in the same predicament as a geologist, who, while he is confined to the land, sees the decomposition of rocks, and the transportation of matter by rivers to the sea, and then endeavors to picture to himself the new strata which nature is building beneath the waters. Prejudices arising from our not seeing subterranean changes. Nor is his position less unfavorable when, beholding a volcanic eruption, he tries to conceive what changes the column of lava has produced in its passage upwards on the intersected strata or what from the melted matter may assume at great depths on cooling, 
or what may be the extent of the subterranean rivers and reservoirs of liquid matter far beneath the surface it should therefore be remembered that the task imposed on those who study the earth's history requires no ordinary share of discretion for we are precluded from collating the corresponding parts of the system of things as it exists now and as it existed at former periods if we were inhabitants of another element if the great ocean were our domain instead of the narrow limits of the land our difficulties would be considerably lessened while on the other hand there can be little doubt although the reader may perhaps smile at the bare suggestion of such an idea that an amphibious being who should possess our faculties would still more easily arrive at sound theoretical opinions in geology since he might behold on the one hand the decomposition of rocks in the atmosphere or the transportation of matter by running water and on the other examine the deposition of sediment in the sea and the embedding of animal and vegetable remains in new strata he might ascertain by direct observation the action of a mountain torrent as well as of a marine current might compare the products of volcanoes poured out upon the land with those ejected beneath the waters and might mark on the one hand the growth of the forest and on the other that of the coral reef yet even with these advantages he would be liable to fall into the greatest errors when endeavoring to reason on rocks of subterranean origin he would seek in vain within the sphere of his observation for any direct analogy to the process of their formation and would therefore be in danger of attributing them wherever they are upraised to view to some primeval state of nature but if we may be allowed so far to indulge the imagination as to suppose a being entirely confined to the nether world some dusky melancholy sprite like umbriel who could flit on sooty pinions to the central earth but who was never permitted to sully the fair face of light and emerge into the regions of water and of air and if this being should busy himself in investigating the structure of the globe he might frame theories the exact converse of those usually adopted by human philosophers he might infer that the stratified rocks containing shells and other organic remains were the oldest of created things belonging to some original and nascent state of the planet of these masses he might say whether they consist of loose incoherent sand soft clay or solid stone none have been formed in modern times every year some part of them are broken and shattered by earthquakes or melted by volcanic fire and when they cool down slowly from a state of fusion they assume a new and more crystalline form no longer exhibiting that stratified disposition and those curious impressions and fantastic markings 
by which they were previously characterized. This process cannot have been carried on for an indefinite time, for in that case all the stratified rocks would long ere this have been fused and crystallized. It is therefore probable that the whole planet once consisted of these mysterious and curiously bedded formations at a time when the volcanic fire had not yet been brought into activity. Since that period there seems to have been a gradual development of heat, and this augmentation we may expect to continue till the whole globe shall be in a state of fluidity and incandescence. Such might be the system of the gnome at the very time that the followers of Leibniz reasoning on what they saw in the outer surface might be teaching the opposite doctrine of gradual refrigeration and averring that the earth had begun its career as a fiery comet and might be destined hereafter to become a frozen mass the tenets of the school of the nether and of the upper world would be directly opposed to each other for both would partake of the prejudices inevitably resulting from the continual contemplation of one class of phenomena to the exclusion of another man observes the annual decomposition of crystalline and igneous rocks and may sometimes see their conversion into stratified deposits but he cannot witness the reconversion of the sedimentary into the crystalline by subterranean fire. He is in the habit of regarding all the sedimentary rocks as more recent than the unstratified, for the same reason that we may suppose him to fall into the opposite error if he saw the origin of the igneous class only. It was not an impossible contingency that astronomers might have been placed at some period in a situation much resembling that in which the geologist seems to stand at present. If the Italians, for example, in the early part of the twelfth century, had discovered at Amalfi, instead of the Pandex of Justinian, some ancient manuscripts filled with astronomical observations relating to a period of three thousand years and made by some ancient geometers who possessed optical instruments as perfect as any in modern europe they would probably on consulting these memorials have come to a conclusion that there had been a great revolution in the solar and sidereal systems many primary and secondary planets they might say are enumerated in these tables which exist no longer. Their positions are assigned with such precision that we may assure ourselves that there is nothing in their place at present but the blue ether. Where one star is visible to us, these documents represent several thousands. Some of those which are now single consisted then of two separate bodies, often distinguished by different colors and revolving periodically around a common center of gravity there is nothing analogous to them in the universe at present for they were neither fixed stars nor planets but seem to have stood in the mutual relation of sun and planet to each other 
we must conclude therefore that there has occurred at no distant period a tremendous catastrophe whereby thousands of worlds have been annihilated at once and some heavenly bodies absorbed into the substance of others when such doctrines had prevailed for ages the discovery of some of the worlds supposed to have been lost the satellites of jupiter for example by aid of the first rude telescope invented after the revival of science would not dissipate the delusion for the whole burden of proof would now be thrown on those who insisted on the stability of the system from a remote period and these philosophers would be required to demonstrate the existence of all the worlds said to have been annihilated such popular prejudices would be most unfavorable to the advancement of astronomy for instead of persevering in the attempt to improve their instruments and laboriously to make and record observations the greater number would despair of verifying the continued existence of the heavenly bodies not visible to the naked eye instead of confessing the extent of their ignorance and striving to remove it by bringing to light new facts they would indulge in the more easy and indolent employment of framing imaginary theories concerning catastrophes and mighty revolutions in the system of the universe for more than two centuries the shelly strata of the sub-apennine hills afforded matter of speculation to the early geologists of italy and few of them had any suspicion that similar deposits were then forming in the neighboring sea they were as unconscious of the continued action of causes still producing similar effects as the astronomers in the case above supposed of the existence of certain heavenly bodies still giving and reflecting light and performing their movements as of old some imagined that the strata so rich in organic remains instead of being due to secondary agents had been so created in the beginning of things by the fiat of the almighty others as we have seen ascribed the embedded fossil bodies to some plastic power which resided in the earth in the early ages of the world in what manner were these dogmas at length exploded the fossil relics were carefully compared with their living analogues and all doubts as to their organic origin were eventually dispelled so also in regard to the nature of the containing beds of mud sand and limestone those parts of the bottom of the sea were examined where shells are now becoming annually entombed in new deposits donati explored the bed of the adriatic and found the closest resemblance between the strata there forming and those which constituted hills above a thousand feet high in various parts of the italian peninsula he ascertained by dredging that living testacea were there grouped together in precisely the same manner as were their fossil analogues in the inland strata and while some of the recent shells of the adriatic were becoming encrusted with calcareous rock 
he observed that others had been newly buried in sand and clay precisely as fossil shells occur in the sub-apennine hills this discovery of the identity of modern and ancient submarine operations was not made without the aid of artificial instruments which like the telescope brought phenomena into view not otherwise within the sphere of human observation in like manner the volcanic rocks of the vicentin had been studied in the beginning of the last century but no geologist suspected before the time of arduino that these were composed of ancient submarine lavas during many years of controversy the popular opinion inclined to a belief that basalt and rocks of the same class had been precipitated from a chaotic fluid or an ocean which rose at successive periods over the continents charged with the component elements of the rocks in question few will now dispute that it would have been difficult to invent a theory more distant from the truth yet we must cease to wonder that it gained so many proselytes when we remember that its claims to probability arose partly from the very circumstance of its confirming the assumed want of analogy between geological causes and those now in action by what train of investigations were geologists induced at length to reject these views and to assent to the igneous origin of the trappian formations by an examination of volcanoes now active and by comparing their structure and the composition of their lavas with the ancient trap rocks the establishment from time to time of numerous points of identification drew at length from geologists a reluctant admission that there was more correspondence between the conditions of the globe at remote eras and now and more uniformity in the laws which have regulated the changes of its surface than they at first imagined if in this state of the science they still despaired of reconciling every class of geological phenomena to the operations of ordinary causes even by straining analogy to the utmost limits of credibility we might have expected at least that the balance of probability would now have been presumed to incline towards the close analogy of the ancient and modern causes but after repeated experience of the failure of attempts to speculate on geological monuments as belonging to a distant order of things new sects continued to persevere in the principles adopted by their predecessors they still began as each new problem presented itself whether relating to the animate or inanimate world to assume an original and dissimilar order of nature and when at length they approximated or entirely came round to an opposite opinion it was always with the feeling that they were conceding what they had been justified a priori in deeming improbable in a word the same men who as natural philosophers would have been most incredulous 
respecting any extraordinary deviations from the known course of nature if reported to have happened in their own time were equally disposed as geologists to expect the proofs of such deviations at every period of the past i shall proceed in the following chapters to enumerate some of the principal difficulties still opposed to the theory of the uniform nature and energy of the causes which have worked successive changes in the crust of the earth and in the condition of its living inhabitants the discussion of so important a question on the present occasion may appear premature but it is one which naturally arises out of a review of the former history of the science it is of course impossible to enter into such speculative topics without occasionally carrying the novice beyond his depth and appealing to facts and conclusions with which he will be unacquainted until he has studied some elementary work on geology but it may be useful to excite his curiosity and lead him to study such works by calling his attention at once to some of the principal points of controversy end of chapter five part two recording by patrick mccaffey chicago